Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Want to learn how to have better conversations about difficult topics? Maybe even improve your relationships after getting into argumentative ruts? Want to hang out with me and professional facilitator Misha Globerman? As we take the stage and then get off the stage so you can take part in an experimental interactive book launch for How Minds Change with drinks. Well, if you want to do all those things in person or live via streaming, click the link in this show's description to get a ticket now while there are still tickets or head to Caveat's website at caveat.nyc because that's where all this is happening on September 20th, Caveat in New York City or on the internet if you choose the streaming option. But if you do go in person, I really, really hope to see you there. I'll sign your book, I'll clink your glass, and we can talk about brains and arguments or whatever you have on your mind. Live, caveat, September 20th in New York City and streaming. Link in the show notes in your podcast player or at youarenotsosmart.com or at davidmcraney.com or at caveat.nyc. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 241. The kind of human behaviors that are associated with humiliation is just extraordinary. Everything from spree killing to honor killing to serial murder to terrorism, whether it's the UNA bomber or Islamic terrorism, all the way up to genocide. Humiliation is implicated in all of those behaviors. And, th- and that was the moment that convinced me when I, when I started doing all this reading about humiliation. You know, one researcher calls humiliation the nuclear bomb of the emotions. That is the voice of best-selling author, journalist, science writer, Will Storr, whose new book is titled The Status Game. And Will Storr is one of the greatest science writers working today. Full stop. But I won't stop. I love his work. I love his prose. I love his insights. And the Venn diagram of our obsessions massively overlaps. Will is also a great friend. In fact, while writing How Minds Change, I often bounced ideas off of Will and sent him a chapter to get some feedback, which he did provide that feedback. He did not say, great job. He pointed out all the ways I could improve it and all the things I ought to take out or communicate in another way or simpler way or just not at all. So I was very happy to get a chance to invite Will back on the show. You may recall he's been a guest before talking about his previous books, The Unpersuadables and Selfie, and he wrote another book before this one titled The Science of Storytelling, all of which I highly recommend. But this book, The Status Game, this one feels like required reading for anyone confused, or curious, or worried 
about how politics, cults, conspiracy theory communities, social media, religious fundamentalism, polarization, and extremism are affecting us everywhere, on and offline, across cultures, across the world. What is this status game? It's our primate propensity to perpetually pursue points that will provide a higher level of regard among the people who can, if we provoked such a response, take those points away. And deeper still, it's the propensity to, once we find a group of people who give us those points, to care more about what they think than just about anything else. Will explains in the status game that this is on the motherboard. It's an inescapable part of human cognition, of the human experience. We are deeply motivated to avoid losing this game through the fear of shame, ostracism, embarrassment, and humiliation. And we are deeply motivated to win this game, to earn pride and fame and adoration, respect, and maintain our hard-earned status. This game, this pursuit of dominance, virtue, or success, this status game, is innate. It's constant and it's ubiquitous. We all wish to elevate our status and avoid losing whatever status we currently perceive ourselves to have. It is as inescapable as the motivation to warm yourself when you grow cold or the motivation to cool yourself when you grow hot. It is as inescapable as the behaviors we engage in to satiate hunger or thirst. And as you heard in that bit of audio just now, we will discuss humiliation because Will writes in the book that humiliation creates the most lethal players of this game. He shares a proverb to emphasize that that reads like this, quote, the child who is not embraced by the village will burn it down to feel its warmth. That's because one way that humiliation drives people is you want to get out of it. And it can seem to a person in the midst of that who's been kicked out of the game by humiliation that you can use violence to turn shame into something like pride. You could hurt others to escape the virtue game and try your hand at winning the dominance game instead. And we will also talk about this game is so deep into our source code that you can easily fall into an infinite recursion just talking about it, thinking about it. For instance, let's say someone posts something on Twitter that might be considered virtue signaling, that very overused phrase these days. But let's say someone does that and that's what it's considered to be. And then someone calls out that virtue signaling. And then someone calls out that person for the fact that calling out virtue signaling is itself virtue signaling. Then if I tell you that calling out someone for saying that calling out virtue signaling is itself virtue signaling is itself virtue signaling, then now I'm virtue signaling by telling you that to sound clever. And then this keeps going until we, are, we never get into the air. I felt really gross <laughs> reading this book. This book made me feel weird and kind of bad and... I didn't know what to do with myself because I started feeling like, oh, wait, this is another aspect of the illusion of the dream 
this is this book gets into the motherboard of human consciousness and there's so many refrains in this text that say you can't get out of this one i'm sorry there's no this is part of who you are it's it's this is on the mainframe this is in the architecture of, of who you are did this freak you out writing it yeah yeah it did freak me out it was kind of by turns you know incredibly depressing uh, and frightening but also um kind of revelatory and it kind of gave me this um kind of new perspective on on human life that do it really wrenched me out of that political left right binary I, I, that's one of the main things it did it kind of gave me this kind of view above all of that stuff uh, and hopefully that, that that you know that people who read the book will get that sense too that it kind of gives you this kind of top down look at human life in, in which everything for me anyway everything made a bit more sense yeah i got that sense as, as well but i also it all it kind of get gave me this the science journalism version of some sort of lovecraftian horror feeling of i was so zoomed out from what we are that i started to freak out that we even are anything and i don't know i don't know if you did that on purpose or this is just me projecting a lot of me into it but uh it came through in a lot of areas of the book do you i i, I wonder if this i'm asking this like is that sort of an arc you feel like you've been on? Because I, I, there's a thread. You mentioned it in the, in the introduction. There's a thread of a couple of different pursuits that you've been on as a, a science writer. And this braids those threads up in a way. And I'm wondering if, uh, if that's what you're feeling or that was your idea, that you would keep rising up or, or you'd keep getting more and more bird's eye view till you were in you know satellite space. What was the... What yeah. was, what was the sort of the motivation here? Well, I, I think the journey that I've been on as a science writer, um, as you know, I think the first book I wrote, The Delve Into the Science, and where our, where our interests definitely start to overlap, was when I wrote The Heretics, which was published in the US as The Unpersuadables. Um, and The Heretics is very much about, you know, why do, why do smart people believe end up believing crazy things? You know, why, um, um, why does someone like David Irving, who was once an extremely well-respected you know um, um historian of the second world war how does someone like that end up believing that hitler was a friend of the jews you know <laughs> how does it happen and, and the answer that, that that you know that i kept coming upon was this idea that the brain is a storyteller not a not not a fact checker you know he's not particularly interested in the truth it was it, what it wants to do is tell you a heroic story about yourself and the life that you're living and and, and that's the idea that I, I was pursuing over the next book selfie and then the science of storytelling was the kind of synthesis of those two um, books and all of that was looking very much at the conscious experience of life so so our conscious experience of life is this heroic story assuming that we're psychologically healthy and we end up believing crazy things you know a lot of that is down to the fact that we we, we tend to uncritically accept any idea we come across which flatters that heroic story and find canny ways of rejecting any fact we come across uh, that, that that um undermines it and you know intelligence is not inoculation to these effects as you well know in your your, your work you know um but, but what i want to do with the status game we say okay so i've done that <laughs> you know i've written about that for three books now the idea of consciousness being a story so what's actually going on in the unconscious what, what you know what's the real politic of the human mind and there was this great phrase that i first read um that that, that, that humans have this kind of uh the, the assertion to do two things which is get along and get ahead so we're you know we're a tribal animal so we you know we want to get along with the people around us but once we've connected believe with the people around us we, we've got that that urge to achieve status um so, so so that was what i wanted to write a book about next like what's going on underneath the story 
I thought I knew what this book was going to be about, right? Like I, I'm, I'm looking at the cover. I'm sitting there thinking about it. I'm thinking about all the stuff that I uh, read and and stuff that I put in uh, my most recent thing about tribal tendencies. And I've, I've interviewed people about this. I've talked to people like Dan Gahan and Liliana Mason and and all that stuff. And I had in my mind, oh yeah, I know about all this. I'm glad that I'm glad somebody took this and put it all in, into and focused on this one particular thing. What I wasn't prepared for was that uh, that's not what the book is. Like you, you create a, a, this framing of the status game itself. Uh, you then you get into a number of really fascinating uh, uh, ways of of making sense of this. That each of them communicated to me how how deep and amazing and enormous this investigation is. But then I went to the next step after all of that to thinking. Oh wait, this is source. This is foundational and in a way that I had never thought of it that way. I think I'd always thought of this as being a program that was running on the hardware. Okay, you know, humans are very concerned about reputation management and that's because we need to work well in groups and la la la. And what I started to get about midway through this book was uh and, and even though you say this up in the, in the beginning, in the beginning of the book you say you say life is a game the game is inside us. It is us. And I took that in the introduction to just be, this is a great introduction. I didn't realize that that was a thesis statement and that you would defend the thesis to the point that I started holding my stomach and I didn't sleep well the first night. (laughs) Let me uh, turn that into a question by uh, starting with what you start with. There's a story in the book about someone who goes to jail who decides that they'd rather stay in prison then leave prison, even though they could leave, even though they have the promise of a wonderful life outside of it. And you use that as a great way to sort of ground and humanize the thesis that you're about to produce. What's going on here? Yeah, so this is the story of Ben Gunn, who's this guy um, I met um, a few years ago. And so Ben, um, when he was 14 years old, uh, he had a very troubled upbringing and he ended up in care. And he um, uh, basically, he killed a, he killed someone, he killed an 11-year-old boy. So at 14 years old, he, he was a child killer and he was found you know, guilty of murder. And he was sent down at what's called in the UK Her Majesty's Pleasure. And what Her Majesty's Pleasure is, is just an open-ended jail sentence. So, so you're in there for as long as they decide that you're going to be in there for. So you're a lifer, essentially, um, with, with no fixed date um, um, for release. And he came to my attention as a journalist about 10 years ago because he, he was, for a while, the, the longest-serving prisoner at Her Majesty's um, pleasure in the country and there were campaigns for you know for, the, 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 for his release and then he was finally released and I just was interested to find out what um what life was like for him having been really having been in prison since he was 14 years old and is now in his late middle age so you know what he told me was really an extraordinary story that that obviously when he was imprisoned he had no status whatsoever he was he was a child still he was a uh you know he, he was a child murderer um, he was treated like you know terribly by the prison officers. You know the, the vindictive bullying that would go on in in the prison system, and no doubt still does. And initially, he responds by, well, how you expect? He become he tries to escape, that fails. He becomes suicidal. He tries to starve himself to death. Terrible things. Uh, but then something interesting happens. That then he he decides you know he he wants to start um, um, kind of fighting back with, uh, to the prison officers. Um, and so he, he starts, you know, reading up on law and becoming an expert in, in prison law and the regulations and, and begins educating himself generally. 
Um, and then, so you know, how it said to me was that I had I had status in that prison. Firstly, because as a lifer, you're already at the, you know there's a, this status game within the prison. Lifers are at the top. You know, sex criminals are at the bottom. Is essentially how it works. You know, famously all over the world, that's how it is. But then he also started getting status as this, you know, this this character, the, the prison house lawyer, the jailhouse lawyer. So any time a prisoner would have a problem with the with the screws in the prison, they'd come to him, and he and, and he'd you know launch appeal after appeal after after appeal, and and generally make life extremely difficult for the prison service. And that's why they kept refusing his parole because he because they just hated him. <laughs> you know, they they absolutely hated him. And then and then one day um, along comes this uh, teacher, um, Alex. Her name was. She was an English teacher, and they basically fell in love. They were you know just having sex in the stationary cupboard and all sorts of things like this. And she said to him, look, you know, if you leave prison, all you've got to do is behave for six months. You'll get parole. There's always campaigns out for your release. Just behave. That's all you've got to do. I've got this beautiful cottage in the countryside. I've got a cat. You can move in. Everything's waiting for you, a whole life, and, you know, a life with me, who you're in love with. And he just didn't do it. And, and, and finally, he, um, he finally he, he confessed to her, like, you know, I want to stay in, in prison. And so, you know, the, the the point of that was that he'd earned status in prison. He'd become a person in prison. These these games that he was playing for rank became who he was. He was the jailhouse lawyer. He was the lifer. And um, you know, when he did eventually leave prison, he he, he collapsed. You know, he he said, I, I in his, his own words, I knew who I was in there. I don't know who I am out here. And so that's what I mean when I say it is us. Like we we are the games we play. I'm a writer. You're a writer. We're authors. You know that's who we are. Um, uh, uh, so, so yeah, I, I mean that. I mean that literally. That the status games form our identity. It's so incredible that you start here because I, I was, and as you go later on the book, you get you get back to this because I, I, the fact that we will immediately enter into this dynamic, no matter what we're doing, and no matter where we're at, and no matter what the brackets are around our our experience at the time. Uh, but also within the brackets, if you're doing really well, then it becomes frightening to escape whatever bracket you're within. So like I can, it made me sense about all sorts of things. There are celebrities I've seen who I'm like, Hey, just like bail out. <laughs> you should stop saying what you're saying, do what you're doing. Uh, people who get locked into Twitter in a way that, that shocks me, uh, science communicators that uh, seem to be doing fine. And then when they enter into the, social media space but you can't understand why they are being mean to everybody or why they're not very good at at twitter people who uh, risk everything for a certain type of legacy that that is only important to people who are fans of the particular thing they're into all of that stuff locked in pretty quickly reading the book i'm thinking about your example of this uh person in prison who when they leave prison they lose the status they acquired in prison and you think to yourself well so no big deal it was a huge deal for them it like uh this is the route to, to suicide for people this is the route to the kind of devastation that put people on downward spirals in all sorts of domains was this something that you had, were sort of had a sense of going in or did this emerge from the research yeah 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 i mean it kind of emerged from the research but but i know from I guess, you know, there's the whole thing of using yourself as data. You know, I, I, I'm a terrible example of the kind of, I live the kind, I live specifically the kind of life I warn against in the book, which is just playing one status game. You know, I'm not a father. I don't have any kids. 
you know, I don't, really, I, I don't play sports. I don't have any hobbies. I just write. That's what I do. And that makes me extremely vulnerable. And, and, and so in my day-to-day life, when things are going well, I feel great. I feel amazing. Uh, but, but, you know, things start going wrong. I, it feels like an absolute collapse. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it, it, there's that cliched observation, which is absolutely true, which is, you know, somebody said to me the other day, they said to me, you know, if, um, if the 14-year-old you that was failing all his exams at school and was constantly in trouble and was being told he was going to end up in prison or whatever could, could see you now, he wouldn't believe how, you know, with the life you've got, you've got this amazing wife, you've got this career as a writer, you go around the world. And that's true, but it doesn't matter because I'm on this. It's about the status game and it's about the ups and downs in the here and now. And, and you know, uh, and and yeah, if I, if I lost it all, even though I'd still have a house and my wife could, would be able to support me, I, I, I would certainly become suicidal because I am a writer. That, 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 that's, that's the game into which I've invested the effort of my life since I was, you know, 19, 18, 19 years old. That's, that's what I've done. So if it's taken from me, you're, you're, you're taking, you're, you're, it's like a, like a desiccate, like a, you're dissolving my, you know, my, myself. That's what you're doing if you take that from me. And I think that's why when you take someone's reputation, it is, a, it is extremely serious. And, and, and sure, say so someone like Ryan Adams, you know, he's, he's been cancelled. Um, but he, he, could, he could be, he could be, um, he could be, in inverted commas, happy for the rest of his life in theory because he's got loads of money. He's going to carry and get him all these, you know, records, royalties from all over the world. Guarantee he'll, he'll be comfortable with his life on, on, on the work he's done up until this point in his life. But but I also would 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 not be surprised at all if when he was cancelled, he came close to feeling where well, he felt suicidal. I wouldn't be surprised at all because because it's the status game. And, you know, we are the games we play. And, and he had this catastrophic um, fall in status, you know, overnight when 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 this New York Times piece about his personal life was um published so so so, so, so yeah i think when we say when, when we look at these very very high status people um and say well you know yes okay you know this has happened to you but look at what the money you've got it, the money is neither here nor there uh, i don't think it's all about the, the reputation it's about your reputation is yourself and, and it's about that having been taken from you yeah and i i as soon as i started to buy into the framing of this is a game and all the different ways you describe it as such. And I think about, you know, all that stuff in psychology about uh, going back to Piaget and all those other people who talk about learning the rule, playing a, playing a game is a great way to think about a lot of psychological concepts that involve models of reality and norms and all sorts of stuff like that. Cause you, you learn the game, then you learn the game has rules and then you learn that games can have rules and all that stuff. And so my, like, uh, one of my gut reactions reading was like, I would like to, uh, stop playing this game. I want to get, how do I get out of this game? And I think I started thinking about people who become hermits or who become recluses, uh, the person who's the, the scary, uh, person with the house on the, on the end of the street that nobody doesn't come out to get, to get their mail. Even they get the mail at night. I, I started thinking about these, uh, archetypes, these stereotypes we have, these, these, these character figures and uh, the mountain man, the, the marble man, the, the cowboy, the, all the other stuff that come from American culture, these, these ideas of individuals who opt out 
the boat captain <laughs> on his own boat, all these ideas. And um, I started getting an extra la- layer of uh, discomfort realizing you can't do that anymore, really. Uh, I guess you'd have to go super extreme and, and leave all of society itself and like actually go primitive if you wanted to get out of the game. And I started thinking about people who are already... They already have this feeling of being outside the game already. They, they're pretty isolated individuals who have a, a very small social support network. And for a while, that person existed, I think, in our, in our public consciousness as a lone wolf, loner type person. But then you add internet slash social media and you describe what happens oftentimes is this person finds a community online but instead of they don't just find the community they also join the game when they find that community <laughs> and yeah and that's dangerous when you only are playing the game in one community what do you, what are your thoughts there yeah so you know like like so so, so I, I think there's a couple of things that, that, that just to analyze you know when, when i say that you know that life is a game again i you know that's not just like a like a flashy ted talk thing I, you know i mean that literally and i think that you know when we when we think about games when we think about like football or baseball or um you know monopoly <laughs> that's just using neural circuitry that was designed to play the status game we know what is a game it's a you know people come together uh, with, with an agreed set of rules and if you follow the rules well you go up in status and if you don't you go down in status you know that, that that's what a game is but and that's what that's what life is too that's what uh any human group is any you know human groups operate status games to have they're defined by their their agreed sets of rules by which we play at life and the better you play the higher you you climb in status and that's a description of politics of cults of religions of um you know um um you know cosplayers and furries or you know whatever <laughs> whatever kind of group you can impossibly imagine that's how it works there's a pecking order a hierarchy mm-hmm. and when we go up the hierarchy we feel great we get those internal rewards and external rewards too um often um and when we go down we feel terrible feel dreadful so so so, so, so you know life is um you know literally again you, you can't stop playing it and and you know you you can take um you can take the most committed hermit in the world and introduce them to somebody show them somebody and and they'll and they'll be immediately comparing themselves to that person mm-hmm. do I feel intimidated by this person or do i feel superior to this person it's an instant human reaction we have that's the game don't lose your train of thought, but it just occurred to me that they're also carrying people in their memory already. Like they they might be alone in the mountains, but they're remembering their entire <laughs> lifetime of people yeah. they've ever been around and comparing them. They're they're in the mountain because they're playing the game. <laughs> like they wouldn't. Yeah, be the- that's right. And, and, and in the book, I talk about um, the Hikikomori in Japan. Who you know, Japan is a is a fiercely competitive um, so you know game. The culture of Japan. And so they have this, you know, a, a large number of people, which, you know, famously the Hikimori who shot themselves away. Um, and, you know, two things about that is one thing is that they often shut them away, but they're playing computer games. So, so they're still playing a status game. That, that's what they're still doing with their lives. Uh, and also the, the, they're not known as being particularly <laughs> happy people, the Hikikomori. They often die alone and people don't find them for months you know it's not good it's, it's not optimal um and the, the, the other kind of set of people that try to recuse themselves from the status game are people who do meditation and there was a, there was a, there was a great study they did in the netherlands uh, i think it was 3,700 people where they um they, they assess people who specifically meditated to 
reduced their, I think, ego needs was, was the way they described it. And they found that these people scored very high on what they called spiritual superiority. <laughs> so they found that when these people got good at meditating, they started to feel pretty good about themselves. And actually, they started to feel a bit superior to the people around them in their life because they had this superior insight into life and reality, which other people didn't have. So it had the kind of opposite effect that, you know, and, and you know, it's kind of funny when you read that. Um, but, 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 but it's also, it just has that ineffable ring of truth to it. Of course, that's what happened because that, that's human nature. We all know people who meditate and think they're great. But, you know, kind of look down their nose a little at us unwashed who are unenlightened, you know. It's, it's, so, 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 yeah, that, you know, you, you, you cannot, you, you cannot escape it. As you said in, in your words, you know, it's source code. You, you, you can't escape it because um, uh, it, it's how we experience life. Yeah, and it makes me crazy, man. <laughs> like, like I, I haven't. I wish had, you could. Oh, you'd be so happy. I think. I, I haven't Honestly, had I this. I think you would. Yeah, <laughs> I would. I'd be deliriously happy if I could just not not care about this. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, then I'd probably, I'd probably be dead because I would stop earning money and <laughs> I'd be scruffy and I'd be smelly. And I'd be fat, you know. <laughs> I had this. It's been a little while since I've had this feeling in this space, uh, you know, and. It makes me think all sorts of things about like how you can't opt out. I mean, you, I shouldn't because I mean, like if I bump my knee and it hurts, like it's not like I get existentially freaked out that I can't escape pain itself uh, and that I'm made out of meat and all the other stuff. But there's this feeling of if you think about all of this hard enough, you, you there's a safe domain that you can create some sort of no self space, like you're mentioning with the uh, meditation, where for brief flashes, you can almost see what it would be like to not be this way, but it's like a whale okay. reaching. You know, you you have you fall right back in you just for a second, just wow, and then yeah, <sighs> yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah, because I, I don't be too harsh on meditation because I, I I do I, I don't meditate. I, I I do want to start. I did try it when I was younger, but I found it very difficult. But but and I and I do I do believe I do accept that that it can help you manage these these feelings better. But, but I don't accept that it. You can be cured of it. Yeah, I don't think there's any way out. Uh, that's and I think yeah. that for the first time in a long time, uh, you wrote because of the book that you wrote. I'm like, oh yeah, there's no way out. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so thanks. <laughs> question mark. Let's talk a little bit about what we're actually talking about for a second. I think uh, for people that listen to this show and they want some, they like sciencey things, and you do an incredible job going through the literature in this. I think a good way to get into this is talking about the sim, uh, symbology of, of and how we're so attuned to it right. by asking this question, which is, what's the deal with yams? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, 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 so the yams. Yeah, so the yams are another sort of great example that I found of a status game. Like, it's just a perfect example, really. It was found in this uh, with, with a series of studies of this island community in Micronesia. And, and they, they play a... Yeah, they've got they've got the men of that island um, play a status game around growing massive, massive yams, and so you know life on that in that place is very stratified as life generally is around the world. Chiefs at the top, and you know, and it goes down. It's very hard to move up and down in status unless unless you bring a massive yam to the chief's feast, and the person who brings the biggest yam to the chief's feast in in, in um, Pompeii. Um, is literally declared number one. That's what they call them. And they're, they're the number one person. So they've got this huge rise in status. And the effects of this are just quite extraordinary. I mean, so so so, so men of the island are, are completely obsessed with growing massive yams. Like they'll, they'll sneak out of their house at two in the morning to tend to their secret yam pits in the forest and, you know, 
uh, put the fertilizer on them. Like there's a whole uh, system of etiquette around the yams. You're not allowed to glance at another man's yams, even if it's their eating yams that they're growing near the house. It's not allowed to even look at them. It seems you really can't weird. look at another man's. No, yams. you can't look at another man's yams. <laughs> and um, and but but I think the most interesting about all this is is that they're massively successful. Like you know, there, there are pictures of you know men. Uh, 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 taking yams into the fist that are so huge feasts that are so huge it takes takes like 12 men to carry it, it one yam in on a special stretcher made with poles and i think that's a real you know it's funny it's crazy because it's such a waste of time you know <laughs> like yeah these yams i mean I, they come very tasty when they're that big uh but 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 but, but uh, i think it just shows the, the the unbelievable thirst for status that humans have um, and also the, 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 the incredible ingenuity and achievement that um, is, you know, it comes about as a result of our of the games we play for status. And as I say later on in the book, when I talk about modernity and that, you know, status's role in the creation of modernity, you know, the, 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 the kind of thing that, you know, knocked the Enlightenment um, together and was this obsession that was that, that, that came about this status game around new and useful uh, knowledge, which was you know, the beginnings of the Enlightenment. And so it is in the book, you know, when, when we play status games around massive yams, the result is massive yams. But when humans play status games around the, the acquisition of new and useful knowledge, the result is the Enlightenment. So, you know, so, it's, you know, it's, 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 and then the Industrial Revolution and then modernity and then human rights. And, you know, so, 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 so that's, you know that, that that's how fundamental I think it is, and that's kind of the the good thing about um, you know our status um, craving. You know, there's lots in the book about the bad effects, but there's also lots about the good effects too, and how our pursuit of status underlies so much of what we we think was good about human behaviour. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns and I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before and this helped. Now a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time and the question is time for what? If our time was unlimited how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that 
is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything. And you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks. And drive down costs. And one. Because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases All these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. I love that you've offered a, a glimmer of hope or a, a, a way where you can see this. We can like leverage it to our 
uh, advantage in that in certain disciplines and silos, uh, in places where science is being conducted rigorously and well, uh, you uh, elevate your status within that group by being a a person who vets your facts and and is very, very good at the at the enterprise of science and very good at pursuing accuracy at all times and testing your hypotheses and all this other stuff. Like they've created a status hierarchy in which things that might get us off the planet and on the moons of Jupiter are are things that would uh, also elevate you within that community. Am I, am I thinking in the right way there? Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. It's all about what your incentives are. And, and you, you, know, you know, pre-modern, um, you know, I loved how you framed this kind of stuff in, your, in, in how minds change. But in, in the status game, you know, I talk about um, that there are you know, different kinds of games. There's dominance games, virtue games, and success games. And they're, 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 they reflect the different ways, different forms of status that, that we... That, that we can earn, we, we can earn status through dominance, through fighting, through virtue, which is conformity and um, you know following the rules and enforcing the rules. Um, and then there's uh, you know and belief, and then there's success, which is competence-based status. And uh, and it, you know the outcome of a status game just just depends entirely on on on, on the kind of status that you're um, what, what you're trying to pursue. And I, and I think you know pre-modernity. Humans were just locked in these kind of dominance virtue games. It was religion, it was caste, it was royalty, it was all about subservience, following the rules, knowing your place. And then, and then we started to play these success games, um, uh, 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 which, which, which is, as I say, you know, began with this concept called the Republic of Letters, which all these kind of Aristos and um, around Western Europe were, were, were using the early postal system to kind of send the equivalent of you know we think of scientific papers to each other to you know showing off the, the, the things they discovered about how the stars moved and you know things like this esoteric um knowledge and it became very fashionable and and so and and they developed an early kind of scientific method you know like like it was seen as um you know bad behavior not to um you know reply to the letters it was you, you were supposed to correct you were supposed to acknowledge other people's influence on your ideas you know everything that we'd recognise as the basis of the scientific method today was 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 there in the Republic of Letters, and and that and that, and that became the Enlightenment. And it, and it, as I say, it's all about incentives. The specifically in that status game, um, you were rewarded status for the discovery of new and useful knowledge, and and by correcting other people's claims to knowledge, you know, in true and accurate ways. And 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 that idea just you know changed the world. And you know, and me and you, you know, like science writers do the same thing. I spent. I spent thousands of pounds on this book on fact checkers. You know, I had, um, you know, like psychologists, neuroscientists, anthropologists. I had a just a just a professional fact checker. You know, you know, aside from what my publisher did, you know, because you know it's part of the status game that we play as science writers that you have to be correct. And what you don't want is a review in the New York Times pointing out eight things you've got wrong in the science. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, so that's that's the nightmare. That's a career destroyer. So so you do everything you can to avoid that, and and, and so and the results, and that's me playing a status game, you know, defending my reputation, thinking I if I'm making all these claims about the world, I cannot be wrong, you know. Um, but 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 the but the other result of that is that I, that, that hopefully I've said something new and true about the world, which is useful. Yeah, there's a there's a. Like uh, these things have helped us. It's such a bizarre thing to accept that that there's a massive uh, downside here that we can talk about uh, in many different ways. That feels like it's turning me more into an animal than in a human. But then <laughs> on the other side, I'm like, no, humans are animals, and this is what our nature is all about. And if you watch Star Trek, and I was worried because I'm like, I was thinking, 
this man is ruining Star Trek for me because I've started thinking about everything in Star Trek is about, look at us, how we've escaped the worst of ourselves, but we also have ranks that are very important. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm the captain. You need to do what I tell you. There's all these ways you can uh, ruin your reputation. In fact, they they imagine a, a future world where Everything is reputation. Are you pursuing noble goals? Have you said? Yeah. Have you done or said something that would make us feel as though you're not a good member of the human species? The noblest, most incredible thing you do is reach the level of a high-ranking officer within this militaristic organization that is so humanistic. We've gotten rid of money, <laughs> but then, but you, when you point out these three games, and you you talk about them in an, in a uh, cultural evolution format, like. We, we start out in that sort of bonobo chimpanzee dominance thing. Mm. And you talk about how in their societies, about, you know, they just rip off genitals. <laughs> they, they just yeah, they, drink they, blood. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but part of that came, comes from them being in very small, not dense dynamics where, yeah, that uh, similar to, there's all sorts of things where humans will get into very similar dominant situations where the very best, the best thing to do is to, is to throw around your weight, uh, whether it's war or, or some sort of, uh, um, mafioso type framing where this is how you maintain your, your status. But, uh, I'd like you to, if you could, if you, if you recall the, when you go from the dominance only situation to the first inklings of cultural evolution in which uh sharing things signaling your virtue and all this stuff family alliances uh, kinship becomes something more important what was the thing that 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 arced us into that and then how did that arc further into examples of success and achievement and prestige yes so it's it's essentially you know it's communal living that 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 that, that was that's the tipping point you know highly cooperative communal living you know when you're living around a campfire which you know, sometimes described as human nests. Um, you can't just play dominance games constantly because it's going to be an absolutely hellish existence of people just beating the crap out of each other mm. constantly. Um, so, 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 so um, you know, if we we're going to be, you know, that you know, cooperative and rely on each other to to to, to get along um, and get ahead to survive, um, then we had to, um, you know, figure out some new ways of playing status games. And those new ways of, of playing status games, they had to incentivize communal living because that's what we were doing now. So they had to incentivize kind of the kinds of behaviors that would privilege the group over the self. And so, 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 so th- th- these kind of prestige forms of status, mm-hmm. you know, we don't prestige, these reputational forms of status. So you're not playing with your physical stuff, you're playing with your reputation. And there are essentially two ways of being useful to the group. Uh, the first way is by being virtuous. So by knowing the rules of the group, knowing the myths of the group, enforcing the rules of the group, you know, we're very conformist um, animal and we're very conformist groups, um, you know, knowing the rituals, doing them well, um, that, that kind of thing. Um, but then, uh, um, and then, you know, being courageous, you know, being courageous in battle and in, you know, during the hunt is also a form of virtue because you're, there's a form of kind of selfless behavior on behalf of the tribe. But then there's also competence, you know, so, so, so it's being a great hunter, being a great honey finder, being a really great storyteller that, you know, so, 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 you know, that's also useful for the tribe. So that's another way of earning status, you know, by, by showing competence at tasks that are useful. Mm-hmm. So, 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 you know, dominance, virtue and success, that's, that, that was human life 20,000 years ago. You've only got to look on Twitter and Instagram for five minutes to see it's human life today. I mean, mm-hmm. social media is human life unfolding on- online. It's dominance, it's, it's um, virtue, and it's success. It's people showing off their awards and their 
sexy bodies and their you know, <laughs> cars and whatever, 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 however it might be that they're showing off that they're they are a successful individual. Yeah. I I enjoyed uh, taking notes while reading because I started drawing diagrams. It makes me wonder how much you do this for yourself as you go in because uh, once you get in any topic like this and you start trying to swallow the ocean of it. Is like you're like wow this could you could arrange it like this but when you think about it it's like this and all of a sudden you have a flow chart that goes in every direction and it mm. becomes a fractalized concept oh, um yeah. i love it i love this i'm telling you I'm, you've excited me about something here like i i, did, I didn't understand this at, uh, nearly as much as i thought i did and i love when that happens like i like the idea that thanks to all the all the weird things that happen in natural selection we have this brain that is very keyed in on this as a system of grouping up and getting the best out of groups. And then uh, it's just like, sorry, this is going to, this is better for you on the, in the long run. You are now cursed with uh, ha give, having to care a lot about this at all times. You have to yes. care. <laughs> so it, it's better for your species. Uh, I am the absolute dispassionate, unforgiving nature of natural selection. And you're anthropomorphizing me right now because you can't help doing that either. So that's happening mm -hmm. to me. And then, and then you, in that system, there becomes a bit of organization because we start out in the state of nature with the, all these dominance things that as primates do, it's all keyed into the yam thing where we have a brain that is eager to to discover that which are indicators of status and then also to take that to the next level once we've indicated it. You talk about uh, studies where your corporations where the high-ranking people get a pen on their desk. <laughs> what happens after that? Yeah, so they they the test where they had all these um, you know C-level executives and and um um, they all had one pen desk sets and they and they and, and then one of them got a three pen desk set and within <laughs> day, they all had three pen desk sets and then the, 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 I mean, it was quite it was, i think it was back in the 70s so it, it, it's quite dated in its kind of references but it's still very funny the um the, the status displaying behaviors that i just noticed in this office included um um you know walking fast with I think, what was it walking fast with papers under your arm and also sh displaying multiple clocks <laughs> <laughs> was, a, was another was another status to sort of yeah every symbol everything that becomes a you talk you use the phrase and I love it this is a such a great way to to talk about it is just status detection system this is a thing you're born with it it kicks on very early and it starts messing with your behavior right away and because we're so eager to detect things that will indicate you going up or down in, in a uh, status system, in a reputational management framework, anything that offers you, that signals, that ascribes this status to you, people will go overboard with very quickly. So you suddenly your chest is covered in metals. Suddenly your wall yeah. is covered in clocks. Gucci handbags yeah. will go up in price, up in price until finally it's, it's crazy. Watches that tell the time just as well as a $10 watch will suddenly become 50 to $500,000. Yeah. And a lot of stuff that we, I think in your teenage, just coming online, just getting mad at the world, first bong rip state where you say, that's so, all that's bullshit. I'm not part of that. It feels that way, I think, first at these sorts of things. At least it was for me. I'm like, why do people waste their money on this? Why do people care about celebrities? Why do tabloids are so successful? Mm. Uh, this is why. 
You explain it in the book because we have this status detection system. That's why the yams are so big. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's not that's not that's not my phrase. I wish it was. That, yeah, that, that wasn't my phrase. I, I, I forget who, who came up. That was in the paper that I read. But they they described it, and, and I, I think one of the, what, the, the 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 image that was stuck in my head, and I brought up repeatedly in the book because I think it's so clear, is the idea of there was a test where they showed that when you pour people measures of orange juice in a glass. Like if one person gets a little bit less orange juice, they get irrationally emotional about it, upset about it, because of course it's not about how much drink do I get to, you know, um, to, to, to sate my thirst. It's about that the, the status detection system is always on and it's always looking everywhere for um, signals of where you sit in the status game. And if you get, and if everyone gets a bit more orange juice than you do, that's immediately taken as an insult. You, you know, that's a that that, that, that that's, that's a comment. On my level of status so, so, so that yeah so, so that's and i mean i mean and in the adolescence thing i think that was one of the that was one of the kind of revelatory thing you know things i suddenly understood who i was as a you know as a as a um teenager when i read that stuff about how the brain changes in a very specific way when we start adolescence and that specific way is that we become much more conscious of um other other people's uh, other people's opinion of us mm-hmm. so in, you know we start playing proper adult status games we start really caring deeply about our reputation within our peer group and that's why teenagers have this weird combination of crazy risk-taking and intense embarrassment you know which is easy to trigger because they're just highly 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 tuned into playing these status games for the first time that's why they flock into peer groups um you know separate from the family that you know there's peer groups there's status games you know those those social groups that we form in teenage years you know, the reason that you know teenagers drive too fast and take crazy risks is because they're desperately trying to get a status from their peers and, and the reason that they become so easily embarrassed and cring- are cringing at everything is because again there's this highly highly they're suddenly highly um sensitive to these new status games that, that their brains are, are suddenly playing so, so 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 you know all of that you know and, and you know like, that's that kind of weird thing when we are teenagers we you know we flatter ourselves because we're not like our family and we're not mm-hmm. like the grown-ups that so we're individuals but of course we're not individuals we're just like the people in the social group that we're hanging out in we're kind of clones of each other um <laughs> and, and that's because we, all, all, all that's happened is we've started playing our you know adult status games we've left we've left the simplistic games of the family and, and of youth um and we play we, we're suddenly you know the brain has changed and we're suddenly now playing proper adult status games i wanted to mention in this detection system part of things it's way more than what you think it's way more, way more than what is what you're consciously aware of you talk in the book about we have we can register facial markers of dominance and submission within 43 milliseconds and that's just the beginning there's also there's like voice hum and things like that do you recall some of those elements yeah 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 i wrote that voice hum thing i wrote about that selfies as well it's such a mad study yeah that was so one of the ways that we're playing status games is in this frequency in the in the human voice um that we can only detect unconsciously and um what happens is that the dominant person in the conversation um everybody else matches their frequency to 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 to, to, to kind of meet that they, they adjust their frequency to, to, to meet the dominant person, the person with the highest status in the group. And the, the, the researchers who um, did that, you know, did a test of, sorry, the, the researchers who did that um, study did a test of, um, you know, um, TV chat shows and, and, and found, uh, you know, the particular guests that the chat show host met, you know, matched their frequency to and the ones that 
Uh, it was the other way around, so they could see. Oh, so yeah, that's incredible. Which, uh, they could see which uh, which guests were intimidating to them and which guests they were they were they were you know intimidating. Yeah. So so, so, so all that is going on beneath the level of conscious awareness. You know, we, we're changing how we speak and matching the frequencies of people that we want to that we feel subservient to and we want to kind of defer to. Yeah, and this kicks in right away. You write in the book that like seventy five percent of the arguments children have after about 18 months or over stuff like this possessions and yeah. why did you get that and not me? And why do you favor this so-and-so and not myself? And, and uh, wow, we only get, a, <laughs> we're only here for a second. And then we start jumping right in. Yeah. It's completely natural. And it happens automatically. You know, we, of course, you know, when, when, when kids are fighting over the toy, they're not really fighting over the toy. They're fighting over who has status in that, you know, relationship yeah. as, as the toy is the winner. So, 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 yeah, so, 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 you know, it, it's absolutely wired into who we are. Yeah. And the, I think we get a couple of abstractions removed from it. Sometimes we think about money and power that you talk about. There's symbols uh, that we use to measure status. No, aside from these symbols, aside from all the other things we talked about, there's also the rules of the game that we learn. And I love the framing in the book of there's a deeper, older, you more universal to all human uh, set of rules of the hunter-gatherer rule set, and then on, on top of that are the uh, sharpening and flattening, shaping and uniqueness of cultural convention rules. Yeah. On top of that, mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I think the way to see that is kind of hardware and software. So that, that there are certain ways of living which which are, we, you know we've been doing for so long they're kind of wired into us, and and these these are your kind of basic rules for communal living so it's, it's, it's so it's you know it's 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 following the rules um respecting the hierarchy sharing is good you know the, the you know it, it's the, it's the very kind of basic rules of existence which make us human but and that's you know we're born um uh with those kind of latent within us and as, and as, as the brain grows you know the, 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 those rules begin to manifest in our behavior you know quite naturally but on top of that, but you know, but, but as is well known as humans, the, you know, we're born with these semi-finished brains. We, you know, we, we're completely helpless. Our brains are half done, and that's what childhood is about. Childhood is about writing all the rest of those status game rules into our brain. You know, initially through parental training, and then at school, and you know, and so on, and then you know, during adolescence, it continues. And all, throughout all of those years, we're learning that the status game rules of our particular time and place. And so, so, you know, everywhere you go in the world, the basic rule is, you know, go for status. And if you go for status, everything else is going to get better. But, uh, but if you travel you know, around the world in space, if you travel back and forth, you know, not, not forwards, obviously, <laughs> if you travel back in time, you, you, see the, you see the ways that we are pursuing status radically change. You know, in Micronesia, in Pompeii, it's about growing yams. Uh, famously in East Asia, they're, they're much more communitarian than we are over here in you know, the individualist West. And one of the interesting things, I read a paper about um, face, the concept of face, and, and they said that in Japan, if an employee is singled out for praise, rather than being proud and chuffed and I'm the winner like we would be in the UK or America or Canada, um, they're, they're ashamed because what that means is that, every, is that everybody else is, they've made everybody else feel bad by being singled out for praise. And so how they'll correct that behavior is by deliberately doing a worse job in the next weeks in order to kind of settle back into the group and 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 and, and right the wrong of their being singled out. So 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 
the fundamental rule is there go for status but but but, but how they're going for status it, it, it is completely different it's about the status of the group and you know um and yeah it's, so, so so there's huge variety as you you know and that, that's what culture shock is i mean essentially you go to a different culture and 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 the little things that you're doing that 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 would other, that that back where you come from would earn you a certain amount of respect and status um that they, they stop working in you know and so and, and that's that thing of culture shock where i don't quite know what's going on i'm not getting the, rea the reactions and responses from people that i'm expecting um so you feel alienated in the one set of rules, the hunter-gatherer set of rules, you, you have this idea in the book of uh, if you had three people from three different cultures with three different professions, and then they were just tossed into a, a, a hotel room, like in a reality show kind of way, they would be able to get along as human beings using these basic rule sets, the, the help your group reciprocate, defer to superiors, mm -hmm. uh, respect each other's stuff, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I think about how we often love uh, fictional tales about people from different cultures finding common ground. And I feel like, oh, yeah, the, the, that feels great. But it's also a little weird to think that we're programmed to be able to do that, as that it, that's part of our, our birthright by, by way of natural selection. And then, but those things also have a coarse quality to them. And this is what I'm headed toward because you mentioned this of coarse quality, which I find super appealing. There was a Twitter argument or Twitter debacle recently about how in Sweden it's okay not to feed your guests. That <laughs> 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 uh, you if you have a, a child come over to hang out with your kids, yeah. it's okay to eat as a family and exclude them. That this is, it's more complicated than that. But some people had experienced that uh, as travelers in Sweden, and there's a whole. Yeah five or six days of people talking about this till it eventually ends up on Vox and uh, Vo <laughs> where people are saying, look, here's why things, here's why this happens and why you should or should not be mad about it. Now we're doing hot takes, but it was an example of this. Well, in my culture, that just feels like an of course thing and nobody gets upset. And then in your culture, this clashes and you use examples from the past and you use examples from cultures that around the world who do things that seem outright heinous to our way of thinking in the, in the West and the modern West. But I, I love the idea that it is an of course feeling. And I would love to hear you say a little bit more about that of course feeling. Yeah. I mean, it was, it's, 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 so the rules by which we, you know, uh, earn a new status, they, they, they become embedded into our brain, which is, you know, our experience of social reality when we're growing up. So I guess that of course feeling that, you know, the way you put that, I like it because it, it, it's that sense of, you, you get your brain's giving you a little reward of pleasure. So yeah, of course that's the correct behavior. And you feel there's a, there's a little positive, little status reward that you're giving yourself for saying, yeah, of course, if a child comes to your house, you can't eat your dinner in front of them as they don't eat. Of course, of course. But 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 for the but for, for the person raised in another culture, it would be equally, of course. Um uh, one of the most memorable, like, like one of the things I started to do for my research was read old books of <laughs> old books of etiquette. And, um, and one of the ones that I found, um, uh, it was actually the book called The Civilizing Process, uh, which, which, which the author had done lots of research into, into you know, very ancient books of um, etiquette. And there was some extraordinary stuff there about table manners, um, you know, back in Europe, you know, hundreds of years ago, where he said it was um, more polite to vomit than to keep the, at the table than to keep the vomit in your throat. And, and um, you know, another bit of advice where if you're sharing a bed with a stranger, it's not, and if, the stra if you find a piece of shit in the bed, it's not polite <laughs> to pick up the shit 
and hold it to their nose and go smell that <laughs> it's just like like if that had to be laid out in the book of etiquette it's obviously happening quite a lot <laughs> people are shitting in the bed mm-hmm. going smell that so 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 yeah it's um it, you know it's um it, it, it's just it, the, the, the because because culture becomes embedded into our brains it becomes embedded into our very perception of our social reality it just begins to feel like the world itself world itself it feels like the truth but it isn't the truth it's just the particular the, the rules of the particular time and place in which we've been raised and you the, are there something you say that makes that make super sense to me in a way that i'd never seen it before there was a study where they asked people do you think god could change the rules of physics versus do you think god could change the rules of this particular moral concept in your culture and people are much less likely to believe that god could change the idea of something being right or wrong uh yeah which is astonishing in every way to me like a godlike entity who created the universe and all the laws of the universe there are some things that are beyond the laws of the universe and it's hard to articulate why it feels that way, but people do respond in that way. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's one of the probably maybe the more controversial parts of my argument, um, especially if you're not familiar with this stuff, which is arguing that, that, that our moral universe is also a status game. It's a, it's a virtue based status game. You know, we, 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 we're raised with, you know, the, 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 the basic hardware hunter gatherer stuff is basically, you know, um, try to appear selfless, you know, develop, you get, get, have the reputation as a selfless person. But on top of that, there's, there's an enormous, you know, array of different, you know, moral rights and wrongs as you go around the world. Um, um, uh, and, um, you know, it, you, you can tell it's a status game because it's simply when we follow the rules of our time and place, we raise in status. And then when we don't follow the rules, we decline in status. So, and, and you know, you can look at people like the Pope, and um, um, uh, you know, Mother Teresa, as they're, celeb- they're moral celebrities, they're moral superstars, just like you know, Justin Bieber is a pop superstar. Um, they're, they're moral superstars. I mean, look at the way the Pope dresses, for God's sake. I mean, you know, he's surrounded in by you know, he dresses in enormous, ridiculously elaborate symbols of status, and expects people to kneel before him and you know and, and all that stuff I mean, it, it's nakedly and obviously a status game um, and, and and that's just another way that we that, that we can and do earn status in the world is, is, is by you know with acts of virtue that doesn't undermine um at all i don't think that the um worth of those acts of virtue um i actually think that this is it's all weird virtues. It's both the best and the worst of human nature. And it's the best because we've, we've, we're an animal that's evolved this automatic system of reward um, for um, acts of selflessness. So when when people behave in a selfless way, in a way that benefits other people, um, we raise them up automatically. And indeed, when we ourselves behave in a selfless way, you can feel it in your own body. You know, that's your social conditioning. You, you know, you feel you raised up, you feel good about yourself, you stand a bit taller, you know, and you feel great. And, and, and uh, that's the best, that's the best of human nature, that the, the fact that we have an automatic reward system around acts of selflessness. So to say that, you know, our moral acts are a kind of status game, it sounds like it's a kind of very nihilistic uh, uh, position, but, but I, I don't think it is. I, I think it's, a, it, it's an observation of, of, of what's 
best about us. Yeah, and it's it's incredible to, to see how online, especially, is, is the mass onboarding of everyone talking about things and their cultures meeting each other, and then these morality games that are not the same games meeting each other. And that's when you see a lot of those interesting strangeness. You talk about it in the book. I think the danger of social media is that virtue status is the easiest status to get. Mm. You know, com- dom- dominance is hard. It takes courage. You know, people don't like conflict naturally. Yeah, I don't like conflict, you know, like, but, but sometimes you have no choice. Sometimes you have to enter into a state of conflict. And, you know, some people love that, but lawyers love that stuff. <laughs> but, but most of us don't like dominance games. Um, competence games are really hard. It's hard work. You know, everybody's competing to be the best or to be, you know, better than than, than the most. So, so, so to achieve, uh, you know, it's a dominance forms of status, it is, takes application and discipline. But virtue is easy, especially on social media. All you've got to do is say, ooh, look at what this person said. Mm-hmm. And to, to the people in your particular status game, um, you've become slightly more heroic and go, yeah, yeah. So so, so I, think, I think that's part of the... Um, allure of social media is, is it gives us a very easy way of earning status. You know, dominance, virtue, and success. We do all of that on social media. You know, Instagram is all about success, as far as I can see. You know, it's people. I do it too. You know, I, I, you know, like we all do it. Like some people post pictures of their amazing, healthy breakfast, and some people post pictures of their lovely home and their holiday. I, you know, I, 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 I like my. I, I take pictures. I take sort of arty photos, and I, you know, I want people to go, "Oh, look, it's a beautiful photo." Will you know? It's like a, it's, it's a success. It's a success game on Instagram. Um, uh, but, 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 but I think Twitter is is virtue and dominance. You know, you know, it's it's success too. You know, I'm always tweeting reviews and stuff and annoying people by <laughs> tweeting reviews. Uh, but, but, um, but, 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 um, it's uh, it, it's it's mostly. Um, dominance and virtue it's it's people um you know pushing each other around saying you will play my status game and not your one and you will not um uh, you will not contradict my criteria for claiming status which are these you know these this set of beliefs not your set of beliefs and it's virtue it's saying you know look at this amazing thing i've done look at my opinions on this particular politician um we, you know there's this phrase virtue signaling which which people use as this accusation to point to one another but virtue signaling is a completely standard human behavior it's what we do we all do it you know you're complaining about virtue signaling as a form of virtue signaling you know, you, you know it's it, it, it's kind of silly it's a, it's a banal um and, and this we're now we're in a dangerous hall of mirrors infinite recursion theme because telling people that complaining <laughs> about virtue signaling is itself virtue signaling is itself virtue signaling yeah. and now we're yeah. we're about to cross the event horizon of something <laughs> <laughs> i love perfect storm moments and i see this in a different way here thanks to your book the you get online and you then you you have the clash of two different status games and it becomes very easy to virtue signal when you have a clash like that, because all you have to say is, I'm not like them, I'm like us. Look how much like us I am and how not like them I am. That becomes, yeah. now it's doubly easy and and readily available to you. And then they add, and this is from your from your book, they add schedules of reinforcement and turn the whole thing into a slot machine so that you wake up in the morning and the first thing you want to do is go, ding, 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 did I get something did did my stuff that I put out there raise or lower me and give me some status points that I can feel good about today? And then you make that very easy and you make the schedules very schedulely and you have a always available clash and you make it very easy to, to signal and share things. And then now you really have something new. That, it feels like something created by an alien entity that studied us and said, oh, this will be great to watch this. I'll put them in this situation. It makes you feel strange. 
Yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, I, I, you know, like when I was sort of doing the research into the kind of the, the, the roots of these ideas that ended up being what we now know as social media, um, it was interesting because the ideas that were successful, the idea that was successful was around, um, you know, using computers like a slot machine to give inconsistent rewards. So, you know, slot machines are addictive and compulsive because they, because the rewards, are inc- you never know what you're going to get. The rewards are inconsistent. If you're always going to get this, you know, like a, a $1 payout, it would get bored really quickly. If you're always going to lose, of course, that's instantly boring. Um, but, but because it's inconsistent, you keep going back and you keep going back and you keep going back. And, and, and these kind of very early kind of internet theorists before they mentioned the smartphone were already writing about how this would be a really good way of, um, you, you, you know, <laughs> a really successful way of, you know, growing a business was to, was to deliver these inconsistent rewards. And of course, that's what social media does. Every, every, um, everything you put on social media you don't know what you're going to get back you know the 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 top and the bottom is the top you might end up with a kind of internationally viral meme and you end up might end up being rich and famous and the bottom you might end up being cancelled and losing everything but of course most of us are playing in the middle of that are we going to get you know 15 likes or two likes (laughs) is is the reality for most of us um but 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 it is it's, it's this slot machine but but what was interesting to me was that I felt like when I was reading all this stuff that, that, that even those guys had um, a missing piece to their theory and that and the missing piece is, okay, so if it's, a, if it's a slot machine, what are you gambling with? And so, you know, I really believe that you're, you're gambling with his status. It seems clear to me that that's what you're gambling with when you're playing that, that, um, that slot machine. So that's why, you know, I, I describe social media as a slot machine for status. And I think that's why it has been globally, cross-culturally, massively successful. You know, Facebook is huge in China. Uh, 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 well, I mean, East Asia. I'm not sure if it's, if it's if it's legal in China, but you know, social media is 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 as huge in China as it is anywhere else. You, you know, and and it's globally successful because go for status. You know, playing these status games is, is a basic, uh, you know, it's basic human source code. So, so, so yeah, yeah, and I think that, that that's that that's the root of why of why social media has been so hugely and instantly and cross-culturally successful. It's a big casino that they created in our virtual uh, virtual landscape. <laughs> That's right, and I think even they don't. And I think, you know, how these platforms evolve is that they constantly iterate and they're constantly trying to figure out what do we want? What do, we, what do people want? What do people want? You know, I write about the selfie camera in selfie in the same way that when they came up with the selfie camera, they imagined it was going to be a tool for a bit like Zoom. What Zoom ended up being is going to be what we used to have meetings, and they didn't. Nobody imagined, um, it, you know, at Sony or Apple um, that, that we were going to end up being taking pictures of ourselves, and there was going to be this whole selfie thing going on. But that's what we did, and then they so they iterate the technology around that around what we're doing with it. And I think it's the same with social media platforms. It, it wasn't, you know, there were there weren't evil geniuses who had this all figured out uh, from from the get go. They had some of it figured out, but they're just constantly iterate. They're, iterating and by doing that they're kind of you know um folding their technology around what what humans actually want and and, and so yeah and i think what what they've did, what, what what emerges from that is is just how obsessed with status we are and it's powerful too you know as i say in the book I, you know lots of people have you know more status online than they do in their actual lives you know they will log on to their social media they to tiktok or you know tumblr or, or whatever they're doing and have and have thousands and thousands of friends and then they walk out of their front door and, and and they've got three friends you know so 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 social media becomes incredibly valuable to them because status is a fundamental human need and if most of our status is wrapped up in the online world and in the online version of ourselves then you know that then that becomes an incredibly valuable thing to us 
And I've seen with my own family, like my, my father, who is in his 70s, I've watched what happens. I've, I've seen this for people who joined social media late or who, or who are older and never really were into it until recently. And Facebook made it easy. It's sort of a training wheel, wheels for all of this. And the algorithm won't just slowly figure out what you want to watch and then radicalize you into whatever it is you're into. It'll also turn you into a content creator who makes content that is more and more, uh, well, shitty, basically, because <laughs> my dad will, I watched my dad do this. He puts out all sorts of stuff. I'm into woodworking. I'm into this. I'm into that. But then he posts something political and he gets a lot more likes. And he's like, oh, I should yeah. do more of that. Oh, I should do more of that. And then now he's self-radicalizing within a small community of fellow retirees and veterans. This is something we've done for millennia, but now that we have instant feedback and, and also instant payback. talked about humiliation you devoted a chapter to it and it's an incredible take on all of that and i find it fascinating just go wherever you want with that yeah so i actually was you know we was when i was trying to figure out am i going to write this book or not i gave myself this little test and it was like okay so if you're going to argue that status is so important to our well-being and to human life it's got to be pretty bad when we lose status like that's got to be a bad thing so look into that and if you find out that it's catastrophic it's really bad then 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 i think you will take that as this is a good idea and it's a true idea and then so i found this paper um on you know the effects of humiliation and and it describes humiliation as um it's not just a a, a kind of sudden and public loss of status it's 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 a sudden and public status that is so severe that you're kind of kicked out of your status game that, that you're so reduced that you're you're no longer accepted you know that you're no longer going to be accepted by your group your game in the future and it, the, 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 the kind of human behaviors that are associated with um humiliation it's just extraordinary everything from spree killing to honor killing to serial murder to um terrorism whether it's the una bomber or islamic terrorism all the way up to genocide um you know humiliation is implicated in all of those behaviors and, th- and that was the moment that convinced me when i when i started doing all this reading about humiliation in you know, one researcher calls humiliation the nuclear bomb of the emotions that, that felt to me like proof of concept if, if the sudden and severe loss of status is implicated in all of these horrific human behaviors um, you know school killings um you know i think one, one study found that 87 percent of um, uh, mass shootings at schools, the, the, the perpetrators have been bullied or excluded in some way. That to me was kind of proof of concept that yes, it, it is fair and reasonable to argue that's, that, that that status is, is a fundamental human need and that when we lose it, terrible things happen. Terrible things happen. You talk about serial killers like Ed Kemper, you talk about the Unabomber, you talk about... Elliot Rogers was there, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. You, and... and and then people who do incredible self-harm or they, the, the limitation of what they do is just within their family or they harm or murder a partner. There is a foundational motivation behind much of that. And it is this sense of humiliation that gave me a different lens to look at those things. And I'm still unpacking it. It's really fascinating. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's just, yeah, even there, there was the, um, Violence researcher who, who said that, you know, a lifetime of studying, when he went into sort of study violence, he just assumed, like most of us do, that, you know, violent people are, or, you know, street violence is, is usually 
um, motivated by greed or need. You know, it's, it's desperate people. It's um, greedy people. They're what they're, they're trying to get. You know, they're mugging people to get stuff and all this, or whatever, whatever it is. But he said, you know, that, that that's not what he found, and his lifetime's work has convinced him that it's actually all about status. It is, and and most violent acts are a result of people feeling that they've, um, you know. Uh, their status has been, or you know, they've been disrespected in some way, and and what really was interesting to me as somebody who is thankfully doesn't have the violence gene and doesn't really understand it, was he described an act of violence. It's it's, it's not just about restoring your sense of status, so you don't just go back to a kind of zero point. An act of violence um, uh, transforms a feeling, the, the feeling of shame, and turns it into a feeling of pride. So you actually, you actually go from a negative to a positive when you attack um, somebody that you feel has disrespected you uh, with an act of violence. And that's why it's such a way of life for, for, for people, especially people for whom, you know, status is very hard to come by. You know, it's often, it's often people who are, you know, socioeconomically very deprived, who don't have many pathways into, you know, healthy functioning status games, uh, you know, in their life. So they end up playing these dominance games. And, and again, you know, I think... Um, for me, that just builds an incredible amount of empathy for these people, really, because you just see you, you see where it comes from. It's just everybody needs this stuff, and they're going to get it somehow, no matter how they're going to get it. If, if it's not easily available, they're going to grab it somehow. Please never stop writing books. Uh, please never stop doing this. I love everything that you do. Uh, well, likewise. Yeah, congratulations on how mine's changed. Oh, thank you so much. I'm very, I, I was deeply influenced by your work. And I love cracking open anything you make and going, how is he going to describe this in a way I've never considered it before? And beautifully so. Well, likewise. And so I would really appreciate this new one. This is one of those that I deeply endorse. And I want everyone to get this in their head and unpack it and see it and think about it and discuss it. This is really important. It doesn't feel like a hot take. It feels like, hey, you might want to know why you do these things. And I love that about it. So thank you for doing it. And thank you for all the stuff that you do. And thank you for coming on the show. No, thank you, David. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Will Store's Twitter is at W-S-T-O-R-R. Will Store's website is willstorr.com. For links to everything that we talked about, head to youarenotsosmart.com. And to learn more about my book, How Minds Change, go to davidmcraney.com or youarenotsosmart.com. And there are links in the show notes in your podcast player to everything I just mentioned. Also to the live show at Caveat on September 20th. And you can find a link to the homepage for How Minds Change with all the podcasts and other places I've been appearing, giving interviews and so on. Just scroll to the bottom to listen to lots of interviews. And you also find a link to my new newsletter, which is about to crank up. I keep saying that, but I keep getting COVID and other weird things. For all the past episodes, go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Omni, Spotify, or youarenotsosmart.com. Follow me at David McGraney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. Also, you can follow on Facebook slash You Are Not So Smart. And if you'd like to support this operation, just help make it better. Just pay for transcription and other features. Go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Pitching in at any amount will get you the show ad free. But at the higher amounts, you can get posters and t-shirts and signed books and other things. I'm actually about to send out some surprise signed How Minds Change copies out to some people. 
More word on that over at Patreon. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. Tell everybody you know about the show. That's the easiest way to support it. Just say, this episode is pretty neat. You should listen to it. And check back in about two weeks for a fresh new episode. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.